Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to another episode of Wise Up. Today, we're joined by Danielle Dobson. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, Ainsley. Hi, Deb. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, thanks for joining us. So, Danielle is an author, speaker, coach and advocate. As a CPA with extensive 14-year corporate experience, Danielle has covered everything from private practice to multinationals and has lived and worked in four countries, identifying the high level of stress and overwhelm experienced personally and by working mothers. Danielle wanted to make a difference and seven years ago pivoted from her corporate career to helping working mothers find more freedom and fulfilment through coaching in wellbeing. Her experience with her coaching clients told her that the answer wasn't purely in wellbeing. There was something else that is holding professional women back from having the lives they really want. Driven by the mission to find answers to why the daily juggle for balance between work and life is so elusive for women in high-pressured roles, She interviewed over 50 women and a few good men in leadership positions across a diverse range of industries. Through this work, Danielle learned what works in helping women use what they already have to get what they actually want, and she shares this in her book, Breaking the Gender Code. Now Danielle uses this body of work and experience to help women to break free from the gender code that has been holding them back. Working with individuals and organisations, she creates clear pathways for women to unlock their full potential and step into positions of leadership and influence without excessive self-judgment and parent guilt. What a wasted emotion that is. (laughs) Danielle also helps organisations understand the impact of the gender code in their business so they can leverage the power of the high-performing women they already have, attract the right female leaders into their organisation, develop a competitive advantage over industry rivals and boost their bottom line performance. Wow, impressive. Welcome, Danielle. <laughs> great, thanks for having me. Wow, that just sounds really great, doesn't it? It's like, who doesn't want that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us a bit about the gender code. The gender code. Okay, so the gender code I discovered through my research and it was actually um, unintended. And, and just to go back a little bit and give you a bit of a story behind the whole um, project, I um, I started off as a it was started off as a market research project because I wanted to understand the women that I was coaching better. So I wanted to be able to support them better. And I was at a stage where I was feeling stuck myself. I was thinking, how am I going to juggle these two worlds of being a parent, a single parent, and being um, in the workforce and do a really good job of both? So I was on this mission to understand you know, how, how can we do both and, and wanting to find the people who were doing it well. Um, and I wanted to understand the more the unique perspective and how it influenced, um, you, you know, being a parent influenced who they were at work as a leader and how being a leader influenced how they parented. So it set me off on this re, uh, market research project. So I called it the Wonders of Women Leaders Research Project. And I started interviewing these women, CIOs, COOs, CEOs, um, partners in accounting firms, working for international banks, big accounting firms, in all sorts of industry, male-dominated industry, 
banking and finance. I also interviewed a scientist, um, journalist, politician, and I, I wanted to find out what was really working well, so, as I said before. And what kept coming up were some really common themes around how their leadership um, style had changed for the better once they became a parent and that it positively impacted everyone around them. Um, and another thing that kept coming up was this feeling of um, struggling to have it all. So this this being torn and, and torn and trying to think that we have to be high achieving at work, high achieving um, in everything that we do, and it was causing this depletion and, and burnout. But one of the um, things that really, I, I guess, moved me the most to, to, to find out more and to try and solve was the stories around gender disparity, around unpaid work, around discrimination in the workplace. And I actually had not seen it before. I, I guess it was always there, but I hadn't seen it. I'd, I'd worked in male-dominated industries back when I was in finance. And for me, I didn't see it, it just seemed the way things were. But when you start to see it coming out in others and other people talking about it and you're hearing their stories, that's when you start to, to really, um, I guess, get fired up and, and, and think, where did this all come from? And so that is when I, I delved deeper into this gender code. And I did a lot of study, um, further deeper study. And for me, I always look at science um, to explain everything. So I, I looked at our evolutionary past, um, uh, past. I looked at the way our brain works. I looked at neuroscience. Uh, I looked at uh, different cultures. And I worked out that um, the we're actually living according to this gender code. It's that set of default beliefs that we all recognise about the natural differences between men and women. And these beliefs create these stereotypes that keep the genders firmly in different boxes. And it specifically keeps women women from pursuing our, our dreams and, and achieving success in life and work. And we've all been programmed with this, this code and it's, it's over millennia. It's been embedded in for eons. And because it's deeply embedded within our culture, um, it's so much so that, that it's to the extent that we don't challenge those beliefs, even when they create real difficulties for individuals, men and women, uh, for businesses and across societies. Um, because according to the gender code, women are pigeonholed into the role of carer and men in the role of provider. And this programming along gender lines is detrimental and it stops each of us really stepping into our unique potential at home, at work, and the way we contribute to society. So I guess that is, that is what I discovered. And so what I wanted to do is bring that to the attention of, of everyone. And I guess, like I, I always say, I did not set out to write a book, but this stuff that I was learning was just way too good to keep to myself. And I knew I had to share it more broadly. And so I had a bunch of research, all these transcripts. I was very fortunate enough for, to interview people who were okay with me recording. Um, and I had all these research, all this research, 
And I said, right, I need to do something with this. So then I uh, wrote the book with a lot of help from really talented people. Um, and, and I thought this needs to also get out into organisations and businesses, boards, um, to illuminate this and then provide some solutions. So I didn't just stop with um, this is the gender code and this is what it's doing. Also, though, I also put together a kind of a, a framework for women and businesses to, to be aware of the code but then to use what they already have to achieve what they want rather than another thing to add to the to-do list but looking at what they already have and, and leveraging that to get to where they want to. So, yeah, I guess that's a really long response, isn't it? <laughs> it's fantastic to hear about that. And so um, what sort of challenges is this bringing up for um, boards and leadership teams? Mm, that's a really good one. I guess if we start with boards, something that I've been really curious about because um, the, the, data that w- the, the data that we have right now um, uh, the latest report on the Gender Equity Insights 2020 um, produced by the Bankwest uh, Curtain Centre in conjunct- using all the, all the data, longitudinal, a single longitudinal study using data from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, which is, which is data that has to be reported by companies over, with over 100 employees. Uh, and there's about 98% compliance. It's not a – you don't get fined or anything if you don't comply, but all this data on um, uh, gender statistics has to be reported to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. So using that that data, Bankwest um, Curtin Economics um, Centre has used that, and they've come up – the latest 2020 Insights report shows us that there's a direct causal link – between having more women in senior leadership roles and key management roles and the performance of your business. So in terms of profitability, business performance and productivity. And uh, like I've got the numbers here um, to, so that I'm completely accurate. So if, you, if there's an increase of 10 percentage points or more in, for women in, in um, uh, high-level high management positions, and boards and, and senior roles, um, the Australian, uh, the ASX uh, listed companies, um, it, this report shows that there's a 4.9% increase in company market value, and that can equate to 78.5 million Australian dollars. Wow. Um, and it, so, I mean, the numbers are, are, are in, and, and appointing a female CEO, um, there's a 12.9% percentage um, increase of outperforming um, equivalent uh, organisations in this in this in the sector by three or more um, different metrics. And I mean, I could go on. There's there's lots of other, it, but now we can find causal links. So this is relatively new and it's groundbreaking and it's it's a well first report because for a long time there's been the sense and there's been some. Um, evidence, but it hasn't been as um, rigorously, uh, I don't know, compiled, like rigor- rigorously um, put together and scrutinised mm-hmm. and, and using, like I mentioned, longitudinal data. So this, this information has been starting to be, was started to be um, collected in 2012. So Julia Gillard 
uh, when she was the Prime Minister, instigated, uh, created this um, measure. And um, so we have years of research. And so, so in terms of bottom line, because we like evidence, we like data, uh, we like to have, you know, the real numbers to, to help us understand um, the real true impact of, of um, you know, having gender diversity. So we've got it now. So it's not just a, a nice to have or the good thing to do or a fair thing to do to have gender balance at the top or throughout organisations in general, uh, but it's actually a makes good business sense. It is kind of the only thing to do going forward, like now and going forward in COVID and post-COVID. So um, I guess, you know, when we look at challenges, what are the challenges to that? So what I'm hearing generally in terms, if, if we go straight up to the board, okay, we'll start with the board. We do have an increased number of women in, in board positions on the ASX, I think 300, we've got 31.3%. We've hit that recently. Um, and I imagine you would both know, um, have a lot more um, depth of understanding of, of, of compositions of boards, but what we have right now is a situation where there's amazing, amazing women who are serving on three or four, board, like a, a number, multiple boards. And, like, I think about these women, I think, imagine what they have um, progressed through and gone through, how hard they've worked and how tenacious they must be to get into that, into the position they're in now. And, and, that, and that's fantastic. But w- what I'm hearing around boards who tend to be, have more of a conservative approach is that they would rather appoint people with a proven track record so that's why, you know, part of the reason why there's the multiple um, appointments, be, you know, and I'm not sure if they're thinking that there is no, there's not enough of a candidate pool, but it's one of those chicken in the eggs. And it's like when you when you start out in your career, you need to have, you need to get experience to be experienced. And so I think one of the challenges that, that, that um, being reliably informed is that it, it it's a matter of, I guess, taking, it's not even taking a chance or a risk, but it's just looking at at the candidate pool a little bit differently. So maybe not just focusing first on proven track record um, and reliability and, and being a valuable candidate, but maybe looking at what a valuable candidate means in a different lens, not just a proven track record, but skills and strengths and contribution, um, their, uh, you know, their career to date, how that's how that could be valuable to the board. So, uh, you know, I guess my suggestion there is to be looking at, at the candidate pool differently through a different lens and more of an expansive lens rather than a track record proving their stripes lens. Um because the, the, the pool is there. It is absolutely there. And there are people who are frustrated that they're, they're not being considered because they don't have the experience. And then it also feeds in to these gender-coded pressures that women have um, in general based, based on our life experience that we need to earn our stripes before we can um, apply, you know, go for a, a position or apply ourselves to to something that we're not 
you know, experience with. Um, so, you know, these things play into each other um, at the same time. But, yeah, my major recommendation would be to have a look at who is in that candidate pool through a different lens. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Did you find any links between parenting and being a good leader? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that, Deb. <laughs> that was one of the things that blew me away. Uh, I was interviewing women and, and, and men, majority women, and every single one except one said that after they became a parent, they became a better leader. And I was really curious about this and I said, okay, so what was it about that? And they said, well, you develop the skills of empathy, perspective, patience, prioritisation, critical thinking, um, flexibility, adaptability, uh, creativity, all of these skills that you need to um, develop as a parent on the job. (laughs) There's no training on this stuff. (laughs) It's on the job training. Um, and they found that they brought that to their leadership. So in terms of the people that they were leading, uh, they increased their empathy and perspective. So many said after they came back from maternity leave in a leadership position like their first child, that they understood the people in their team so much more like the world that they were living in. Um, They became higher on empathy and perspective and they became more people focused, more people-centric. And it's really interesting. I was hearing this over and over again. And at the same time, I was looking into the future for for the kind of skills and strengths that my children need. need, I've got three um, young boys. So I'm looking ahead to, to look at where I need to help support them to develop their skills and strengths and what's needed for the workforce in the future. And these Skills were, were top skills required, uh, you know, and, and you know, collaboration, um, perspective and empathy, critical thinking, creativity, adaptability. And I'm like, actually, well, if we put all this together, these skills that you build and, and strengthen from becoming a parent uh, are actually a career and leadership asset. So becoming a parent isn't a liability that we tend to think of as from a societal perspective, it can actually be an asset. So I tested this a bit more with uh, some, some leaders and, and one leader in particular, he works in a male-dominated industry and he said, absolutely, he said, a woman who has a baby is one of the, is the cheapest and most effective time management training you could ever put your people through. Mm-hmm. He said, they get stuff done. Uh, they're efficient, they're, um, you know, great at prioritisation, work really hard. Um, and he has this policy where he brings people on maternity, women on maternity leave, well, I should say parental leave, but um, back for one day a week before they're due to come back full time to work on the business rather than in the business. And he said it's an incredible um, opportunity for the women that he leaves and also for him too because it creates loyalty and trust. And he said every single woman that he has uh, managed and led over over his career, uh, probably 30-plus years, I think the numbers last time I spoke to him were about 32 
of like all of they're about 32 and they've all progressed to management positions and some of them have leapfrogged um, males in you know who equivalent who, who didn't take any parental leave um, and he, he said it is a brilliant way to build trust and I, speaking to another senior female leader she had actually had a policy about 10 years ago of hiring women who were um, parents because she said they really get stuff done and she said when you give me a, a woman with you know a, out of you know if they're single and got a mortgage and they are out of this world in terms of productivity so I guess this is what I really want to shine the light on you know that you know we may actually take for granted the skills and strengths that we're building in not only being parent, a parent but caring for others because I found this similar quality in a handful of women that I interviewed who aren't parents but they they were um, pointed out to me for their huge um, success in leadership and caring for others. And they had this same approach about caring for others. And the men that I interviewed have a high value on caring for others. So they were bringing those caring skills, so empathy and perspective, and really understanding the people they were leading. They brought that to their leadership. And the, the psychological and, and, and safety and trust just was off the Richter in their, in their teams because I tested like their direct reports um, to, to really get uh, the lowdown to make sure um, that was everyone's perspective. Um, so, so, and what I found really interesting is that company organisations um, investing training to, to build empathy and, and perspective. But honestly, if we look at how we are in relationships with people and, and you know, we care for others and in particular parents, we're actually building that. It's empathy 101. Um, so, so yeah, so I wanted, I would really like to, to shine the light on that. And the really fantastic thing about this is this is open for, for males as well, for, for, for males in terms of caring for others but also dads, you know, parents. And this is why it's really important to not only create pathways for women into leadership but also to create pathways for men into the home to be able to share the care. So I, that was a really exciting thing that I found about my research. It's not just about um, progressing women, but it's progressing people with those highly sought-after uh, skills and strengths that we really need right now and into the future. Yeah, that's really great um, to hear that you've got pathways for men as well back into the home because a lot of them do miss out on um, taking a – um, more hands-on role and approach with raising children and um, mm. a lot of them do actually feel like they've missed out and um, do really want to take a bit more of a, um, you know, a front seat in that regard and so having something like that is really great. So how do, um, I guess, you envisage that they break the code, for for instance, in these organisations? Is it a change in culture or a change in mindset or a combination of a few things? Mm, great question. And it is a combination. And what I would what I would start with is where is the organisation at right now? So, so understanding their unique context because all organisations are different, you know, at different places along uh, the path. 
So if I if we talk about an organisation that really wants to make a change, sees that the, the current policies that they have in place right now are not happening, um, I would suggest looking at something like, if they haven't already done it, a gender pay um, equity, a gender pay gap audit. So looking across all roles across their whole organisation, is there a gender pay gap? So looking at that, and, and this is especially applicable in professional services um, and IT and organisations where there is, you know, it's not strictly pay scale related, but do that audit, do that gender pay gap audit. And then with that information, if there's a requirement to be reporting that kind of information to the board and that someone's got to take accountability for that, then there's a good chance that that's going to be enacted on. So it really starts with the senior top level, like the board and the execs. So that's that's where, you know, the culture um is is created and then obviously all the way through and and you know a direct report manager your direct manager has the biggest influence on an employee's experience at work that's data that the data that's come out of the Gallup organization so 70 percent of the um employees person's experience at work is determined by the manager so absolutely it's a leadership culture all the way through um so when 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 an organisation is required to report on on uh, the gender pay gap or, or diversity in their organisation, and someone's accountable, there's more likely it's going to be acted on. And I guess expanding out from that as well, policies and procedures. So looking at your policies and procedures, what do you have in place right now around uh, supporting parents uh, to be able to to work effectively, to be able to remove obstacles. And, you know, a big one is um, childcare, obviously, um, and policies that combine work and family better. One of the biggest and most effective um, policies when implemented properly is an all-roles flex policy. So that's where everybody's role is flexible. Now, I know that's not always uh, manageable in all organisations, but for organisations who can try and work towards that. So that's not just parents uh, with parental leave. It is is people who, um, for whatever reason, everyone has individual reasons, but to be able to manage work and family um, better policies that support that. So the all roles flex and the real beauty of that is that then we don't have divisions between parents and others or mothers and others. So if everyone has access to the all roles flex approach, then there's a greater, I guess, um, probability of a more cohesive and collaborative team. Uh, so so they're the top ones that I would I would recommend. Oh, I think like with any research, did you have any outliers as part of your research that didn't fit the model? Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that, Deb, because I guess I actually didn't really have a model of such or a, a, a hypothesis. But what I found was a surprise that there are many, many leaders who are leading lonely. 
Um, I don't know if that's the kind of if you're thinking of that kind, but that that was a real outlier for me. I, I was really surprised that that there was, that they placed such a high value on caring for others that they sometimes felt like people didn't place equivalent value on their own, and I found that really like a, a um, kind of a little bit. Um, you know, disappointing, I guess, from their, you know, thinking of them. Um, and I wanted to do something about that as well. <laughs> that's, why I, that's another part of the reason why I wrote the book because uh, I feel like they're, you know, you know, wanting to care for, for them and for, for all the, you know, other people-centric work that they do, yet they're feeling like they're sort of like holding up a tray. Like you can imagine a tray um, with a whole lot of, you know, amazing food on it or, you know, and drinks or whatever. And they're holding up this amazing tray and, and doing all this work, but not being supported themselves. So who's holding them up? So I guess that was the thing that surprised me the most. Maybe other people wouldn't find that surprising, but I really did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of, um, I guess, some of the other things that spring to mind for me are, um, like there's a lot of importance for ASX-listed entities with um, value placed on a board skills matrix for the board, for, exist- mm-hmm. for example. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they determine what the right age is, what the right gender is, what the right mix is to get that diversity of opinion and the right skill set to execute on strategy. But it might mm-hmm. be even something as simple as having a skills matrix for every layer of an organisation and every type of role and to try and get um, the right people on the bus, as they say, and um, attract the right people in the roles. Rather than just at a board level. Mm, that is a brilliant idea. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, because it, and unless we, unless organisations really put some structure and framework around these kind of initiatives, they will float around. So, Absolutely, I think that is, that's a brilliant idea. Following, and that that fits that same model about culture starting at the top. So, so using the same tools that we're using at the very top, and filter that all the way down. Yeah, so that's a yeah. fantastic idea. And I think too, um, with certain um, investment mandates and things like that coming in from, um, you know, whether it's large um, superannuation funds or other type of um, attracting investment opportunity. Um, there's certain quotas placed on that at the moment for um, the top end of the ASX to um, have gender targets and increase in those gender targets because um, the last couple of years there was a trend backwards in representation of women on boards. So it was actually a little bit disappointing to see those stats come out. So to hear that they're going back up again is um, really good. And then I guess um, changes in uh, mandating quotas is um, is an improvement in the right direction as well for that. Mm, absolutely. And it's interesting, We when we had a little conversation last week, you know, we we're talking about quotas and um, it's really interesting because I, I, I still do have conversations with people um, in around um, quotas and how they feel that it should be on merit. And, and I absolutely, I understand that because that's exactly where I was in my 
in my career, my corporate career. And like I mentioned before, it's engineering services. And before that, it was a question that I was asked when I uh, was in an um, interview for a big four accounting firm. It was about big six back then. But um, And the question was, do you believe in quotas? And at the time I said no, because the lens that I was looking through as a young uh, 20-something who worked really hard, who knew where I was going, who would give 100%, that I, I was operating on a merit base myself. I, I thought that that my success was going to be completely determined by the amount of work that I did, how I networked, how I, you know, what I contributed. Um, but that's because I was looking through my lens and seeing, speaking to, to, to women and men um, throughout this process and, and during the research, and seeing what they saw, how it was different to what I did, and then having a look at actually the people who determine what merit means and the parameters are the people in power. So if the majority of the people in power are only 50% of the um, population, then they're determining the framework of merit. So as much as it's not, it's not, it's not right. It's not fair, and we know now it doesn't make a business. It doesn't make business sense. We need to build in some um, equity in the system before we can get equality. And what really got me over the line with quotas, because I've researched it in politics and business and 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 everywhere, was a story that a senior leader told woman leader told me in a large uh, multinational company. She had been appointed the first senior leader in the company's history. And about five or ten years earlier, she delivered a, um, a policy or a strategy on diversity to her, her manager, which was just thrown back at her, at her and said, this is ridiculous, this will never fly. So I said to her, well, how did, how did you go from your, your policy being thrown in your face to then being appointed as the first female senior leader in your whole company and she said two things she said the law so she said the equal opportunity law helped to shine the spotlight to open things up so it was it was needed and she said the second thing was that they the company discovered that 70 percent of the buying decisions for the products that they the major products they were selling were determined by women so they knew they needed to make a difference. So they knew, so we so quotas are a necessary part, but they're not the whole part of the puzzle. But they can get things moving because there's a whole lot of different elements in play that that need to contribute. So I, I can't wait till we get past quotas and that that we have a system that that um, defines what merit is based on you know diversity. Um, but in the, you know, we needed those quotas to, to, to get going. We need, you know, the laws in place to bring these sort of things to attention, to put the spotlight on it, and for organisations to then start measuring and, and, and looking and, and analysing, like, where are we right now? Um, you know, maybe we do need to, but then moving beyond the tick box. And, and looking at how the, that, you know, diversity in all roles brings innovative thinking, um, you know, different perspectives of thinking, creativity, greater collaboration. Uh, so, so as much as I, I, was, I was there too, I was really always against quotas, but um, they're a necessary part of, of the process. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, though, um, sometimes it can be quite confronting for men who have not necessarily been um, exposed to uh, that sort of empathetic um, challenge or inquiry from women um, in leadership teams or boards, etc. where, um, you know, sometimes women will ask what seems to be the dumb question at the table or uh, because they don't, they might not necessarily have that background knowledge or the understanding or, um, or they really just want to understand it for themselves. So they'll make those positive inquiries and, um, you know, um, respectful challenge and kind of end up with a lot more robust discussion mm, that actually mm-hmm. strengthens a lot of proposals and outcomes for the company as a whole. And nine times out of 10, you come out of those sorts of meetings and um, mostly the men will say to you, oh, I'm so glad you asked that because <laughs> I was thinking that. I just yeah. didn't want to, um, I just didn't want to speak up because I didn't want to seem yeah. like I didn't know the answer. Um, because yeah. it's assumed yeah. I already know the answer. Whereas mm. I think women actually feel, um, in some ways a little bit more, um, comfortable in their own skin to ask those questions and not actually feel threatened by it. Absolutely. And, and brave, uh, choice as well to, to, if you are, you know, one of you know a few or not many women in a, in a in that in that context where people aren't asking questions, and this is one of the things that I found out um, through my research is a lot of that is to do with childhood behaviour. Uh, you know, our our family dynamics, the environment that we're grown up in, um, and, and that we've you know created our own code throughout our lives. You know, in in using the gender code, I guess as a over umbrella um, sort of code, but if you, if you look at the way uh, women tend to operate, and I'm not saying this is fair, and I'm I try to not be gender essentialist with with what I talk about, um, but if you look at the games that boys play, there and once again, it's not all boys, but there's usually a winner, a loser. It's com- competitive. There's a pecking order and a hierarchy. People know, boys know where they are. They pick the person on their team to win. They don't pick them because they've got good social skills. Um, they drop the loss, move to the next win. They lose a lot, they win. But there's, you know, there's, a, there's an outcome. Pretty much all of their games they play, there's an outcome. You take that into the workplace. So you take that into an organisation, your typical organisation, and it's, kind of the same thing they've they've been trained for this their whole life to be in this pyramid kind of uh world where you know and i say that because if you look at an org chart and if you were to draw a shape around it it's pretty much a big fat you know pyramid wide pyramid and so if you look at traditional games that girls play they usually so you know and i'm going to be really um gender essentialist but say you know, dolls, beads, tea parties, you know, dancing, uh, all the sorts of games that girls play, it's process and relational. And, you know, competition can sometimes be seen as a potential relationship breakdown. Uh, and you might pick someone on, on your team or, you know, in your gang, not because they're going to make you win something, but because you like something about them or there's something that, you know, maybe a value add or maybe it could be competition. It's not not definitive but you take that way of operating so this so I I kind of think of that as more collaborative and like a circle like that's kind of a circle approach so then 
you know, we, so that's the context that we're used to, you know, as women and men are used to another context their whole life. And that, that feeds through the whole school system and, you know, into the workplace. So if you take someone who's used to operating in a circle sort of approach and then you pop them inside a pyramid, there's no wonder that there's a lot of challenges and I, and look, I'm talking extremes there and it's not always the case. So what I actually advocate for is, is mixing both together, the, all the really great parts of, of um, the pyramid style and the circle and bringing them together because I think that that creates incredible value. Um, I don't think either is necessarily, um, you know, universally applicable in all situations. It's, it's you know, bringing the two um, together. And I guess what I would say also is I found that based on, on that, that kind of approach and that conditioning and the programming of the gender code, what happens a lot is that men tend to process internally and then they need to have the answer and then they'll speak. Whereas women will tend to process externally, talk about it, um, get input, you know, you know, use our words and then come up with an answer collaboratively maybe or, or getting enough input. And I'm not saying it's, it's, you know, definite or, or that's the way, you know, it always happens. But quite often as a leader and in particular men feel that they need to have all the answers. So they may not speak until they have the answers, but what they really need are the good questions. So the good questions to bring out the answers in the group. And this is the real beauty, like you mentioned, Ainsley, of having more women in the room because it's helping them to feel safe and that it's acceptable to do this. But it's a lifetime of training they've had in a different, in a different context. So bringing all of that together is incredibly valuable. Yeah, and another thing I'd seen was a, um, an interview uh, that Andrew Denton had done with Julie Bishop and it was around um, gender deafness in the um, – <laughs> government and politics and mm. saying how, you know, she'll, she'll say something or come up with an idea and then a few minutes later a man would say the same idea and then they'll go, oh, that's brilliant. And mm. it's like, well, what happened to my idea? And yeah. when I seen this interview, I was like, oh, my gosh, like I, I totally resonate with that because so many times I'm like, what about this? What about that? We could do this. We could do that. And quite often people are just like, oh, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then all of a sudden – you know, the guy beside you goes, well, what about this? And it's exactly what you said. <laughs> like mm. this whole gender deafness um, element. Part of it's parenting yeah. too, isn't it? I mean, mm. no matter what gender, they don't have to fit into a box. You just go, mm. you, you, mm. there's equality mm. here. You can be whatever you want to be. Yes, absolutely. And and it's it's really interesting. I'll just um, quickly speak about your um, – the gender deafness, which is really great. And it was actually, there was a cartoon even before that called the Mrs. Triggs question. And it's exactly what you mentioned, Ainsley. And that's in my book, actually, my research. And I wanted to find out more about that as well. Like what is going on? Because people were, were, were um, sharing that with me too, um, the gender deafness in meetings. And I came across some work by um, a, a woman, an amazing professor in the UK, Margaret, and I can't believe I've forgotten her name, but she has this, Margaret, I'll find out, but um, she has this amazing book, very small, 
tiny little book on women and power. And her her research and, and, and assumptions on that is that it's not necessarily what we're saying, right? Because another thing is, is we might think, oh, maybe I spoke, you know, maybe there's too many words in there. Maybe it was what I maybe needed to be briefer, you know, all of these things. But she takes it right back to um, the the skill and the um I don't know the the I don't know pastime the the mission for men around oratory so speaking in public so that was one of the most powerful manly things you could do in the ancient times like um the ancient Greeks and Romans um and probably even before that all the you know all the time so speaking with a powerful you know language and speaking to people was the most influential thing you could power you could have you know way before the internet and everything so that was a it was a power and all throughout um western culture and literature women have been have not had a voice we we've had a voice on women's issues and children's but not really had a voice in the literature around import there's you know other important issues and she says that it's actually, and she gives loads of examples. It's a, it's an excellent book. It's very small and, and a quick, easy read, or you can get it on Audible as well. Mm. But she says, if you think about how we speak about voices, even so, we talk about, um, you know, the strong, powerful, uh, deep voice of, uh, you know, indicating masculine authority, or the high pitched cowardice of a, you know, an emasculated man. And we don't associate the same level of power, respect and influence with, with that voice. So if you think of women's voices, how they come across, it's, it's exactly the same thing. But then she says as well, it's not that it's just the tone, it's that we haven't, we don't hear power and authority in women's voices because they're coming out of women. So <laughs> when you do, it's you're yelling at the kids to get the shoes and the backpack on the way yeah, out the yeah. door or the lunchbox, and then you just come off sounding like a psycho. <laughs> exactly, exactly, like this shrill, you know, fishwife, whatever. And, I, <laughs> and, and, and people don't kind of res- tend to respond well to that. No. <laughs> For a number of reasons. Um, but but so, so she asserts that that's what a lot of that um, gender uh, deafness is about. It's not what we're saying. It's just that as a culture and a society, we haven't, we haven't learned to accept and understand and hear the power and authority in women's voices because it's deeply ingrained. Um, and I found that absolutely fascinating. It's, and then, then it's like the matrix, you know, like Neo in the, in the, the matrix movie, it just all illuminates and you see it all the time. Now you hear it. it, it becomes a lot more evident. Yeah. It'd be a bit fun to try that one out in the uh, boardroom. Just start changing your voice to like a man or something like that. <laughs> Well, that would definitely get attention. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's always, it's always one reasons. that, you know, the number of times you, um, you get asked when you get a cold or something like that and you, you end up sounding a bit husky and everyone's like, oh, what's wrong with you? It's like, yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, um, we could talk to you all day, Danielle, about this, but um, unfortunately, we're that's about all we have time for today. So, is there any sort of um, sort of top three tips you want to leave our listeners with, and um, whereabouts they can grab a copy of your book and maybe explore some of this um, gender code in more detail? Absolutely. Okay. So, if, if to to women who are in leadership and uh, emerging leaders and leadership uh, roles and want to keep progressing without the guilt. I say, um, buy my book. <laughs> that will that will help you and leave the pressure. Uh, to senior leaders of, of organisations in people and culture, HR, talent, um, I would say, look, do the gender pay gap audit. Look at who you already have. Really have a look at who you really already have. If you think you don't have people in the pipeline, have a good look. Use what, who you already have to get what you actually want. And to senior leaders who are thinking we need to do better, speak to your HR people and look and, and boards, look at the talent pool through a different lens. I'd say look at, at, at the capabilities, the strengths and the matrix and everything you, you mentioned and without needing to have that proven track record. And I guess overall I would say um, ask more questions, listen more deeply and try and understand people from their perspective. Absolutely. And where can they grab the book, Danielle? Okay, so off my website, so um, codeconversations.com.au can purchase it off there, but also in bookshops and it's on the other online bookshops like Amazon, uh, Booktopia, uh, all, just all of the online bookshops. So so please um, buy a copy or contact me. I, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. It's it's always great to get the the fantastic um, uh, testimonials or or feedback from people, which it provides me with fuel to keep going with this because I know it's making a difference. So. I welcome any contact at all. Absolutely. And we'll include the link on our website as well. So once the episode goes live, we'll have all that up there as well. So thanks so much. Danielle, I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.